And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Late night Midnight on the interstate I didn't feel so great until I saw the city. Welcome back to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Very happy to be joined by our one of our great The Athletic uh, prospect writers. And also it's like our The Athletic embed writer, uh, the uh, Scott Wheeler. Scott, you've been embedded with, uh, let's see, you were with Marco Rossi you, uh, and his billet mom a couple years ago. You've been with the Brampton Beast where you rode the buses, the Newfoundland, uh, Newfoundland uh, Growlers. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, uh, where you embedded with them. The Wisconsin Badgers. Um, and Bill Guerin here yesterday, he totally ignored my text when I asked to be embedded in their uh, war room. <laughs> Yeah, I think COVID has has put an end to my efforts to sort of immerse myself in some of these stories, I think. Um, How do you, I mean, you must be a super nice guy if all these people are like, yeah, I'll I'll let you live with us. I'll let you ride the buses. Uh, How do you arrange these stories? Typically, I mean, the first one kind of got the ball rolling on the rest. Typically, I would reach out before the season just to sort of test the waters with an organization or maybe a subject that I'm interested in in sort of... um, working with on something like that. You have to get them on board. They have to be familiar with you. The, the, the first one, the very first one that I did, which was that embed with the, with the Brampton Beast where I took a road trip with them and spent really two or three months just going to yeah. the rink with them every day. Um, that took some massaging. It took some convincing. It took some sort of salesmanship. I'd reached out to them in the summer before the season that it actually took place. And I wasn't actually on the bus with them until the following January. So um, that was about just getting out there and getting to know them. So 
so that once I did get on the bus, it wasn't sort of, excuse my language here, but it wasn't kind of who the fuck is this guy? Who's this guy? Why is he in our space? Why is he bothering us? Um, that that had to be key. You you ha- When you go into those situations, I think you have to have an understanding with the subjects that you're you're not there to sort of play gotcha with them. You're not there to interfere with their job. You just want to tell an honest story about who they are, what they're all about, what their life is like, that kind of a thing. So once I'd done that beast story, it became a, an easier pitch and an easier sell to some of the other subjects and some of the other organizations that I've worked with, because I could kind of use that piece to say, this is kind of what I'm thinking. Um, the access would need to be sort of unlimited and unfettered for it to be as, as good as we want it to be. Um, so if you're not open to that, then we'll go our separate ways. But if that's something you're open to, then, then maybe it can be kind of a, a good project for both sides to tell a story that maybe hasn't been told before. So that's kind of my approach with those projects. And I try to do sort of one or two of them a year and, and sort of at this, every summer I try to think of a new idea for something like that. Wow. Uh, again, we're talking with Scott Wheeler, the athletic or uh, NHL draft and prospects writer north of the border. Um, Scott C. Wheeler on Twitter, by the way, if you want to follow him and uh, on the athletic, if you just go search author, uh, you can look up Scott Wheeler and read all his great work. And one of the great pieces and coincidentally, and we'll talk about this. Uh, he also profiled Ryan O'Rourke that we posted to the site uh, right after the wild drafted him in the second round on uh, Wednesday, but one of the great pieces that you did back in uh, 2018 in the wintertime was you actually lived with the billet parents of Marco Rossi for three days. So you got to know Rossi really well. Um, I know that you are extremely, uh, you, you you really believe in this kid and his ability to play in this league. Um, tell us how you arranged that story and what is Marco like as a person? Well, that story was, uh, it, I didn't actually know I was getting Marco until about a couple of weeks before I, I made the trip out of Ottawa to embed with the team. That was a story where I wanted to tell kind of the billet side of, of, of life in, in sort of junior hockey and the junior hockey landscape because I felt like it wasn't a story that had ever been told. And I told them that I wanted a subject who people were going to know and that I was hoping I could get in with a family that um, was sort of billeting a, a bigger name player, if you will. And I also said that having an import would be ideal for that kind of a project when I reached out to the Ottawa 67s. And I think the 67s were on board because I went to four years of journalism school at Carleton University in Ottawa. So I'd, I'd spent four years covering the 67s and covering the NHL draft from out there originally before I was even hired at The Athletic. And so they were familiar with my work, familiar with me. I, I knew most of the staff there. I knew their billet coordinator and, and their kind of PR reps and all of that kind of thing. And then Marco was just, he just happened to have the billet mom who was most open to the kind of access that I was looking for. So it was a little bit of luck to get a player like Marco and to have a, such a unique story to sort of dive in on. And it ultimately became a story that was just as much about Marco as it was about sort of my intended story originally, which is kind of the life of the billet mom, the billet dad, the, the sort of billet family dynamic in junior hockey in Canada. So Marco was was great. And, and just getting to know him over those few days, uh, his dad, coincidentally, just for the luck of the story as well, his dad was actually over here with two buddies from Austria. So there were these three Austrian gentlemen who were over here sort of coming over for dinner every night and taking Marco out on day trips and we went to a museum together and it just became one of those stories where I could get to know not only uh, Andrea who was the billet mom and who is a wonderful wonderful woman who I still text with almost every day but just to get to know Michael who is his dad and get to know Marco and really what makes them tick and what their upbringing was in Austria, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's a pretty unique story. Outside of Thomas Bannock, we haven't really ever had a player of 
of Marco's quality come out of Austria. So it, it was cool to be able to sort of dive into that. And then obviously you've got the cultures that are colliding. You've got this kid who's learning to speak English at the time. His English is much, much, much better today than it was back yes. then. I actually had to, throughout the story, kind of rely on Michael um, for a lot of the insight into, into Marco because his dad's English was so much stronger than his own. Um, but Marco could get by, he could scrape by, and he just struck me as this incredibly driven, incredibly smart, incredibly conscientious kid. And, and you just don't often see that in kids who are 16, 17 years old at the time. Um, he, he just, he, he got it. He was obsessed with his habits. He was obsessed with what he ate. And you could tell that it wasn't just a show because there was a reporter in the house. <laughs> this was really who he was. And, and everybody in his life could speak to who he was in that kind of a way. He cared about when he went to bed at night. He cared about everything he put into his body. He was dealing with an elbow injury at the time. And he was vigorous about sort of rehabbing his elbow and making sure that he could get back on the ice as soon as possible. And he has just, I've kept in touch with him and his dad extensively over the last couple of years since. And I just think they're both wonderful people. They're both sort of have the right head on their shoulders in terms of where they want him to take his career. And anyone who, who will get to know Marco over the course of his NHL career, I think will fall in love with just how driven he is. He, you talk to anyone in that 67s organization, anyone around him, even talking to him, you get the sense of he's all business. He's just one of those kids who really wants to be the best that he can be in life, on the ice, all of that. So that was the early sales job. And then his development as a prospect since then has has obviously struck me in a different way. At the time, he was a kid who was projected to be a first round pick, but you expected him to kind of go in that kind of 15 to 31 range rather than at the top of the draft. And what has emerged since has been just a testament to that work ethic and a testament to how driven he's been. He's become the best defensive player in this draft class and frankly, probably the best defensive forward prospect outside of the NHL right now. He has become a, a, a wizard on face-offs, a wizard on the penalty kill. He has added 30 pounds of muscle in the last couple of years to become <laughs> one of the strongest players I think you'll ever watch play in terms of his lower body strength and his ability to fight through contact and shed checks and win battles despite being only five foot nine. So that part of his game took an, took sort of leaps to another level. And then the skill set has always been there. The skill set is this kid who can do just about anything with the puck on his stick, does a great job playing from the wall to the inside to sort of get to the slot and create. And though he's not the sort of dynamic finisher of some of the other players in this draft, the Alexander Holtzes and the Cole Perfettis in particular, or the dynamic skater that a Tim Stutzla was, he does everything so, so well. And I think he's going to be one of those players who on, on the sort of totality of his value as a, an offensive player and a defensive player, even if he puts up 10 fewer points than a Cole Perfetti or 10 fewer points than a Tim Stutzla at his ceiling, if, if those kids are 80 point players and he's a 65 or a 70 point player, I'm not sure those kids are actually going to be better players than him despite that, just because of everything else he brings and the value that he's going to bring by playing down the middle of the ice and all of that. So uh, I don't know, top to bottom, I, I, I quickly learned that he was a special kid off the ice and, and the rest has kind of slowly come on the ice to the point where I think he's one of the five or 10 best prospects in the world these days. Wow. We're talking with Scott Wheeler. Uh, this is Michael Russo of The Athletic. Now's the time, by the way, to get into The Athletic, uh, theathletic.com slash straight from the source. You can get in for a buck a month and read 
uh, Scott's excellent story from December 5th, uh, 2018, when he uh, lived with Marco and his billet parents uh, and their and their children. Uh, for, uh, it's just an outstanding story and I highly recommend you reading it. And, and you mentioned his broken English. I mean, that was, I, you know, it's funny. I'm reading the story. And in the story, you talk about his broken English, and that's when I actually went to the top of the story to just look at the date again. I was just shocked that we're talking a year and a half ago that you published this story. And this was – I'm reading this story the night that you you slacked it to me. I'm reading the story after I put my story to bed when we got off the Zoom with Marco, and I'm I'm just like – I could not believe that a year and a half earlier he apparently had this broken English – and I interviewed him on a Zoom where he might have been the most well-spoken draft pick that I've covered in my 25 NHL drafts that I've covered. Um, it, it, I, it, I think that's a testament to just his incredible smarts and why you see on the ice everybody talks about how good and how smart yeah. of a hockey player he is. Yeah, I think that's it. And it's a testament to that work ethic. He got in the into the classroom and grinded with Eileen Duffin, who's the sort of billet coordinator and educational lead with the Ottawa 67s. He knew that he was going to be asked to do a lot of interviews. He knew that if he wanted to play in the NHL, that he would need to be able to communicate with his teammates. And that has come just incredibly far. I, I can even sort of see it when I'm texting with him these days and just in terms of the language that he uses. He, his vocabulary was, was really, really nuts and bolts at the time. And he had arrived, obviously, that sort of September, October. And I, I went out there in, in sort of November, December. And he'd only been here for a couple of months. His, his English, uh, when he lived in Austria, was limited to basically watching the odd movie that was in English and, and using sort of subtitles. Um, he had never really attended serious English classes or anything like that. So it was a huge culture shock. It was a barrier early on with him and Andre Turigny when he, when he arrived, Andre Turigny is the coach with the 67s and someone who I think should be an NHL coach someday. And they just worked with him on everything. And he got in the gym and spent a ridiculous amount of time, both in the gym and in the classroom. And the results are, are, are there now, both in the way that he speaks and in the way that he's built himself physically as a smaller player to still be a dominant sort of physical presence on the ice. So, yeah, it, yeah you're absolutely right. He is very well spoken today. Him and Cole Perfetti, I would say, yeah. are probably the two best quotes to come out of this sort of 2020 draft class. And, and that I, I would have been shocked that that would have been the outcome two years ago for Marco. You mentioned what he puts in his body in terms of nutrition. It's it's hilarious. You talked about his uh, these uh, muffins that Andrea made him in there, and it had, but it, the the muffins had to have seventy percent cocoa because that's what his uh, diet dictated. So <laughs> you can see that he is uh, to the ounce uh, paying attention what he puts into his body. And by the way, you mentioned Carlton University. So when I used to cover the Florida Panthers, they had. Uh, prospect, not only their prospect tournament, but they had training camp in whole Quebec. So mm-hmm. I used to stay at the residence Inn in Ottawa and I used to always walk to the Carlton campus and walk around. Oh, no and what a, yeah. What a gorgeous campus. I mean, this is a long time ago. This is late nineties, early two thousands. But, uh, but I spent a lot of time on that campus, just walking around and a ton of time in Ottawa and, and Quebec. So, uh, so I bet you had a great time learning there. Yeah, Carleton's awesome, and and you're you're bang on on the campus. It's a it's a great great sort of university college campus, and University of Ottawa is also right downtown. But they could not be more more different. One sort of the city university that's sort of brick and mortar, and then you've got Carleton, which is kind of this triangle uh, out in the sort of fields of Ottawa that that is just a, a sort of great place to both study and sort of just hang out, spend your years. So it no, yeah, it was great. 
Yep, 10 minutes from the airport there. We're talking with Scott Wheeler. Mm -hmm. Scott, you, you talked about his dad and how you got to know him. Um, and I know you know the story probably better than anybody, but but one of the most um, you know uh, heartwarming parts of his Zoom the other day uh, with Marco was him talking about his father. And you know this is a 20-year defenseman that played professionally in Austria. Um, he's somebody that was a hard-nosed, uh, you know, bread and butter type defenseman. And he talked about the sacrifice after he retired to drive him back and forth between his hometown in Austria and Zurich, where he played as, played as a youth. And, um, and the sacrifice that it took for his dad, he lost a couple jobs during this time because it was 90-minute drives round trip each day, um, you know, leave at 5 p.m., get home at midnight. Um, how it affected his health. He talked about, um, you know, how he'd look at his dad and he'd be sweating while driving and, and there would be almost like sort of, you know, stiff hands and discolored hands. Um, you've gotten to know their relationship. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Marco and Michael? Yeah, it's it's a special bond. It really is. And you can say that about all of these kids and, and whether it's a sort of the mother-son bond that, that someone like a Quinton Byfield has with his mom. It, you go down the list. It's uh, Keandre Miller is another great example. But there's with Marco, it's it's different, I think, with his dad. they The way that he speaks about him, it's, it's a true sort of love and admiration for who his father is, what he's done for him. And they're, and they're very different people. You would expect them to be the same, but they are very, very different people. Michael <laughs> is a surly kind of comedian, jokester. He loves to sort of just sit around at the end of the day and, and have a beer and crack jokes and make Marco laugh. And Marco is this very serious, very sort of um, straightforward kind of guy. And the two of them kind of complement each other and play off of each other very well. And I think Michael in particular has helped when Marco sort of gets down on himself, which which doesn't have which isn't uncommon. He he struggled early on in Ottawa in a lot of ways, both with being away from home and being away from his family and friends, with the language, with the isolation, uh, and then also with injuries and with his play. And Marco's one of those kids who takes those things maybe a little too hard. He's one of those kids who when he's injured, when he's not in the lineup, when he's not playing well, it really frustrates him and it shows in his personality. And Michael's kind of that guy who just sort of props him back up and has always been there for a phone call and has always been sort of there to, to lighten the mood and, and help him relax and help him focus on what really matters. And um, it, it, it's a special bond. I think my, Michael is a wonderful, wonderful dad to Marco. And obviously the hockey background doesn't hurt either. Michael's a, one of those people who just knows the game. He understands the sport. When uh, when I was in Ottawa for that embed, the, the 67s played a couple of times and Michael was, you could tell just in the way that he was talking about the sport, the way that he was breaking down the, the different players on the Ottawa 67s, how familiar he was with Marco's draft class. There were a lot of things that he'd done to educate himself on Canadian hockey, on the CHL, on the Ottawa 67s. He cares deeply about his son and his son's future and, and the, the atmosphere that he's in and all of that. So he's just a wonderful guy. This is a kid, a guy who volunteered when we were there and he had time to spend with with uh, with Marco and, and he was in town for, for a week. He volunteered one morning to come with me and, and, um, and Andrea and go see Andrea's daughter play a minor hockey game just because... He knew that Andrea's daughter really looked up to Marco and consequently looked up to him as this sort of professional hockey player. And he knew that it would be very cool if he came out to her game and, and gave her some pointers and gave her some tips. Like, it's just a wonderful, wonderful family all told. And I think they all have 
sort of everything that's good in mind. It's not one of those hockey families where hockey is everything to them and it's sort of the be all and end all. It is to Marco a little bit, but they, they do a great job of kind of recentering Marco and Michael's a huge part of that. It's funny you did bring that up because one of the most uh, the, the in your story, um, one of the biggest smiles I got was a picture that you took of uh, of his billet sister and her hat said, I think something like billet sister of Marco Rossi or something. Yeah. I just thought that was really neat. Um, wanted to ask you about Thomas Vanek. Um, Ashley Dan Myers from the from Wild.com the other day uh, uh, talked to Vanek uh, right after uh, they drafted Rossi, and they've actually had a good texting bond the last little while. Uh, Marco really looks up to Thomas Vanek. Um, you know, Th- Thomas lives a mile, mile and a half from me, and I've got to think this is going to be a, just a real hoot for not only Marco but Thomas to have Marco in town where Thomas was such a huge player at the University of Minnesota, played for the Minnesota Wild for a couple of years as well. Um, you know, I mean, talk about, uh, you know, from Marco's perspective, having a really cool role model in town, if he ever needs anything, maybe even get to live with him and his kids as well. Yeah, I think that would be a huge, huge boost for Marco and something that could be a, a sort of a big help to his career, quite frankly. It, it, we, we talk about skill set and I spend all of my time breaking these kids down, but there is so much that can happen between when they are selected and what they become throughout the prime of their careers. There's still a lot of runway, even for Marco, who's on the older side of this draft class and is already 19 years old. So anything that the Wild can do and anything that Thomas Vanek can do to help him along the way, I, I think is huge for him. He's going to need a mentor. He's going to be moving to yet another new country when he moves to the United States and has to deal with immigration and all of that all over mm-hmm. again. And Vanek has been his hero. I talked to him when I was there about just what it's like in Austria in terms of the sports landscape. And Thomas Vanek isn't a household name there. It's the, it's the Alpine skiers. It's the, there are other sports there that are still bigger than hockey in a lot of ways. But in the town where Mike, where, where Marco grew up, which is kind of the Mecca of Austrian hockey, and they've won 20 of the last 25 champ, sort of national titles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there, everybody knows Thomas Vanek, and Marco grew up knowing Tom, who Thomas Vanek was and admir- sort of idolizing him and all of that. So, yeah, I, I don't think that can be understated. That could be a, a sort of really nice element of, of his career and, and his progression moving forward um, if he can really connect with Thomas and, and they can help him out in that way. Scott and I will talk a little bit more about Marco uh, throughout the podcast just because I got so many questions uh, via Twitter about Marco. And if again, if you want to read Scott Wheeler's story um, on on uh, when he lived with uh, Marco for three days and their billet parents, his billet parents, uh, you can uh, go on to the athletic search. Uh, um, the, the headline is Hockey's Home Away from Home, Three Days Inside the Life of a Billet Mom and Her Superstar New Son. This is ran on December 5th, um, 2018. Another Scott Wheeler story that you might want to read is something I've never seen in my 16 drafts covering the wild. It happened after the draft the other night. NHL draft winners and losers ranking every team's first round number one, the Minnesota Wild. And you can see why they might have landed there after listening to Scott and his respect level for uh, Mar- Marco Rossi. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
I did want to ask you about Ryan O'Rourke before we get into Twitter questions, Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, another, I mean, again, you know, the Wild checked off a lot of boxes in this draft. Uh, they they wound up picking three times in the top forty for the first time in their franchise history. They made a trade where they sent a twenty-two year old, uh, really good player in Luke Cunning, uh, and a draft pick to the Nashville Predators uh, for Nick Benino and uh, two draft picks, and that allowed them to get a third-round pick, but also get a second second-round pick. But Brian O'Rourke, uh, where they checked the boxes, is this team needed to stockpile some centers. But the other thing, if you look at their blue line, they have a great blue line, but they're very mobile and sort of undersized, very offensive. What they lack back there is just a jackass, you know, <laughs> like a, just a mean, physical um, t- type of blue liner, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking Darian Hatcher, Chris Pronger, but somebody that plays the game hard and, and physical and makes life difficult um, on, on opposing forwards. And it sounds like that's what they got in, in Ryan O'Rourke. Yeah, he, he was one of those kids. Ryan was one of those kids where I had kind of 20 stories that I wanted to tell in this draft class. And then suddenly I was running out of time and we were <laughs> prepping sort of profiles for some of these kids that could go live immediately after they picked to, to give our beat writers like you some some sort of free reign to do some other things and dig in on other ways instead of having to profile all these kids mm-hmm. and O'Rourke was kind of next on that list he was one of those final boxes that I wanted to check and and the big reason I wanted to sort of check that box was because I remember back in in the fall of last year which feels like two decades ago when O'Rourke was named captain of the Sioux Greyhounds. And I remember being quite surprised by that. They, they weren't going to get Barrett Hayton back and O'Rourke was their natural sort of next selection. And that took me, took me aback because you do not in the OHL see 17 year old kids named captain. It, it almost, almost never happens at the very start of your second season in the OHL, you are seldom a captain of your team. So I knew that there had to be something more there than, than the sum of his parts. And then the game is also interesting on the sort of stylistic side with Ryan, just because he's different. He, you, you kind of touched on it, but he's, if you're expecting Kalen Addison, he's not Kalen Addison. He's going to look different. He's going to play a different style and he's got some, some of that bite to him. Some of the sort of piss and vinegar and all of those, those qualities that everybody sort of mentioned in my story. But one of the thing that, things that's interesting about him is that obviously there's the leadership quality. There's that sort of stand up for my teammates on the ice, lead by example off the ice and my habits kind of style to him. And he's another one of those kids like a Marco Rossi and like a Cole Perfetti who's very well spoken. He's articulate. He, he has a good head on his shoulders that way. So that that's where the leadership comes in. But he's, he's more than that too. I think one of the things that got miscast with Ryan and one of the things I learned over the reporting of the story was that He's not just a throwback. And one of the people who I really wanted to talk to for the story was his off, sort of off-season D coach, who was Paul Ranger, who infamously and, and famously sort of played in the NHL for a decade and was a, a pretty good defenseman in his own right. Um, Ranger was has worked with, with O'Rourke for a long time. And the thing that stuck out to me about what Ranger said about his game is that he's a physical defender, but he's also a positional defender. So typically physical defenders are chasing hits all over the ice and stepping up for that big open ice hit. And that that's not O'Rourke. He's still kind of that modern positional stick on puck, smart player who makes calculated risks. He, he's, he has some of that sort of modern game to him still. He can still contribute offensively. He's got a big shot from the point. He can walk off the line um, and he can sort of move the puck up ice as both a carrier and as a, a kind of outlet passer. But the sort of positional physical nature of it is really unique. And it's something that, that Paul Ranger kind of dug in on 
in that it, it, you just don't see that very often. Again, the, those kids tend to chase hits, the, the big sort of mean players in today's games, and, and always, frankly, dating back to the Scott Stevenses of the world, et cetera, et cetera, have always kind of not done a good job of, of, of playing positional hockey. Dion Phaneuf was the same way in his time. And he has learned to kind of do both. And that's a pretty rare combination, especially defensively. So the defensive game is already there. And now it's just about refining the offensive game. The shot is there. there. There's going to be some work that's needed in terms of him getting a little bit more comfortable with the puck on his stick and working on his hands and his playmaking ability and that kind of a thing to take his game to the next level in the offensive zone. But everything else is there. And everybody you talk to about O'Rourke says, regardless of whether this kid was a late first or an early second, which was always going to be his range, they think he's going to be one of those players like a Jake Muzzin type who kind of carves out a 10, 15 year career as a second pairing guy who gives you a little bit of a different element. And clearly, and based off of your analysis off the top here, I think that feels like a good fit for the wild. Yeah. And uh, he seemed also like a great kid yesterday. And one of the Mm -hmm. cool anecdotes that I, I put in my story, if you haven't read it yet, if you're listening to this podcast is, um, the, uh, he ha- he found a picture of when he was seven years old in 2009 um, at a Pittsburgh Penguins morning skate and coming off the ice, there was Bill Guerin that signed his jersey. And uh, coincidentally, the reason why that is, is that uh, is that uh, Ryan's dad is really good friends with former wild coach Mike Yo, who was the Penguins assistant coach at the time. So that's why they were down uh, in Pittsburgh. So just a really neat story there. By the way, uh, Sc- Scott Wheeler's talent fee. He's working overtime today. You can he- hear him and Corey Promen on uh, Craig Custance's podcast. Um, that is today also on the full 60. And also Brian Burke is on the full 60 as well. I'm um, also Scott Burnside and Pierre LeBron on two-man advantage uh, uh, preview free agency on Friday. It starts at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern time. So I uh, highly recommend you listening to that. Let's go to some uh, Twitter questions if you're okay with that, Scott. I'm sure you're going to uh, uh, hear a lot about Rossi. Um Here's the first one from uh, Noah's prediction. Rossi will uh, be voted to camp, and then when they decide if he's, when will they decide if he's going to make the roster? How do you think it actually will work with, uh, you know, if the OHL does start in early December and training camp starts a week, week or two later? How will that work? Uh, if if there are players like Marco Rossi that need to go to maybe uh, NHL training camp, but their junior teams have started training camp. Uh, a little while earlier, border issues. It's going to be a very uh, complicated scenario. Yes, it will. Uh, With Marco, I think it's a little bit simpler. Uh, He doesn't want to play in the OHL. He does (laughs) not want to return to the Ottawa 67s. As great as his two years were there, he is dead set on making the NHL roster. It's the reason he didn't sign in Zurich, which was the European professional team that, that owned his rights. It's the reason he didn't ask Zurich for a loan to play elsewhere. He just decided, I'm going to train in Austria. He's also recently been training in Germany with a different coach who's a buddy of his dad's. Uh, and, he, and he said, I'm just going to wait and I'm going to come to camp whenever that is for the NHL and, and make my club. That was his kind of mentality. So I don't think it'll be super, super complicated for Marco. I don't get the sense that he's going to change his mind or that he's going to rush into sort of getting back on the ice in a competitive setting just for the sake of playing in games. He feels like he can come into camp and, and make the team. But it's uh, there's no question it's going to be complicated for other players, especially the kids in the OHL and the WHL, the Connor Zaris, the Seth Jarvises, the Quinton and Byfields, the Cole Perfettis, those kids are going to have difficult decisions to make on both when they go to their own camps in the OHL and whether they then leave their OHL teams who may be sort of beginning their season or their WHL teams in, in the case of Jarvis and Zari 
to go and try and make their team out of camp and that kind of a thing. So it's definitely going to be complicated. And obviously the Canadian border and the American border are still not uh, open. So <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's not going to be an easy situation. And the OHL has not even been approved to, to play yeah. yet. They, they, it came out yesterday that they, de- the demand from the provincial government here in Ontario is that if the OHL wants to return, that body checking and fighting will not be in the cards for them. So wow. that's a tough break for them. They, they have to figure out how they're going to work around that and whether they're okay with a league that is suddenly no contact and with that as their option for this season, especially considering there won't be fans in the building and many of these teams struggle financially, et cetera, et cetera. So the Ontario government looks like they're playing hardball with the OHL in terms of what their return will look like. And the OHL hasn't done a great job of, of consulting with infectious disease experts by all accounts. So mm-hmm. it's, it's still a long way from being sorted out. And what is the latest if the OHL does get that sorted out? What's the latest with the OHL and the WHL in terms of the fact that you have teams in the United States and teams in Canada and how that will all work? Because, um, again, if if the border is closed and they're not uh, making, you know, if there's not going to be dispensations or whatever, um, you know, uh, what are they going to do here? Well, I've heard that there was there were two options. The first was to just have the American teams uh, stay in, in the United States and maybe have some kind of division where they play against each other. But obviously in, in, the, in the U.S. there are, are, are only a handful of teams combined between the WHL and the OHL, and it doesn't sound like having them cross over and having OHL and WHL teams compete against each other makes any sense for either of the leagues. So the other option is to have those teams relocate and play in maybe in a a city where some of these other teams already exist. That's complicated, though, and I've heard from players and from parents and and others who really don't like that as an idea, just because the, the OHL and the WHL want to get started in early December. There will then be a mandatory Christmas break where a lot of these kids have to go home. And then you've got the World Juniors where a lot of the kids also have to leave to go to camp. So I think the preference for a lot of OHL players, as long as the wait might be, would actually be to wait until after the World Juniors, wait until after the Christmas holidays, hope that you're in a better situation in terms of the border and in terms of COVID, and then have a season that runs kind of uninterrupted and where you can really sort of get into it. Because the idea of American teams coming to Canada for training camps, playing some games, and then having to go home, in, in many cases, with American players on their roster just isn't appetizing with everything that has to happen with 14-day quarantines, with the American border, with visas with finding billet families for all of these kids in their new city. It's not an easy situation. Revenue streams are going to be very small. Um, So I don't know that the the state of and the health of of both of those leagues really is in jeopardy at this point, uh, especially for some of the, the sort of poorer clubs. And there's there's no easy solution with the American teams, which is part of the reason why the QMJHL was able to start earlier. Right. And uh, as Wild fans know, one of their top, top prospects plays for an American team in the Western Hockey League, uh, Adam Beckman. Uh, Noah mm-hmm. also asked uh, who gets the short shrift if um, if Marco does make the team. I mean, it, you know, they could hold, they could uh, have 14 forwards or you could always bury uh, Victor Rask's contract or or Nico Sturm can go to the minors without waivers. He just have to make his NHL salary. Uh, ben Hurdle asks, um, if Rossi makes the team, how impactful, Scott, do you think he could be next season? I think he can be impactful. I, I think Wild fans know well at this point that uh, up front, despite the some decent depth that they've been able to acquire, that it just isn't a sort of star level quality. I, I think Kirill Kaprizov is obviously going to fit in and immediately probably become 
if not their go-to offensive weapon, then certainly one of their go-to offensive weapons on the power play. We'll see how he does at even strength in the NHL and on the smaller ice surface. Obviously, Kevin Fiala has emerged, and, and there, are, there are some nice pieces there. But I think Marco has a chance, if they're willing to use him in the right role, to potentially play in that top six and play with with one or two, or potentially even both of those guys. Um, but I don't know. It, it's, it's going to be difficult for him. As you mentioned, it's crowded up front. The thing with Marco, though, is that he's not one of those kids. He's not a Quinton Byfield where you have to put Quinton into the lineup and play him with talented players and give him an opportunity to, to succeed offensively. I think if Marco ends up playing on the third line and playing in more of a depth role and playing in more of a checking role, that he can do that. He'll be able to help out on the second penalty kill almost right away. I, I think he'll be able to be a reliable defensive player right away. He'll be have no issue with face-offs. He was a 60, almost a 65% face-off player in, in the OHL last year, which is just crazy numbers. He can help you in the shootout. He can help you on the power play. So I think even if he's playing a lesser role, it's not going to sort of have a deteriorate impact on his development in the way that some other top prospects really struggle to find their own if they're not put in a position to succeed right away. So the good the, the good part about Marco is that he's older, he's stronger on his feet, he's built for the NHL, and then he can kind of play up and down your lineup. So he gives them some versatility, I think. Right. Um, Jim asks, uh, talk about the Wilds goalie prospect pipeline. What, what do you think of, um, you know, they let Matt Robson go yesterday, but what do you think of guys like uh, Hunter Jones? Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much you've watched a Capo Kakinen. Um, obviously, Philip Lindbergh, also another goalie in the pipeline, plays uh, for UMass. I don't love Hunter Jones. He's a great kid, just a wonderful, wonderful kid. Um, I've gotten to know him over the last little while. He's actually sort of a friends of, of a niece of mine, and I've sort of gotten to know him from that angle as well. And he's a great kid and, and, and a smart goalie and a big goalie, so that gives him an opportunity. I, I'm not sure what he's going to be or whether he's ever going to be an NHLer, though. I think Kakinen is is really interesting. I, I probably would have argued that Connor Ingram, uh, the Nashville Predators prospect, formerly of the Tampa Bay Lightning, probably should have been AHL Goalie of the Year last year over Kakinen for, for my money. Um, but Kakinen has established himself now as as a sort of legitimate option. And, and they, they, increasingly, I think the NHL is trending towards sort of 1A, 1B types. And I don't think Kakinen has the kind of upside that screams that he's going to be a clear-cut starting goalie. But if he can give you 30, 25 starts a year and he can give you a 9, 10, 9, 12 save percentage and he can take some of the burden off of whoever eventually becomes the starting goalie, then suddenly your depth issue isn't, isn't that much of a concern. Um, the question is obviously going to be, with as it is with all goalies, is it, you have to wait and see. As, as easy as projecting some of these forwards and some of these defensemen can be, until you see a goalie perform and perform not just in one season, but in two or three seasons, it's extremely hard to project. We even see the top goalies in the world, the, the Braden Holtbys, the Marc-Andre Fleury's, they've all had bad years. So uh, I, I think it's, it's a wait-and-see approach with Kakanen, but he is cert there's no question he has established himself as a legitimate option to be either a, a sort of low-end kind of platoon guy or maybe a high-end backup, that kind of a thing. And I think the Wild absolutely agree with you. I think that is why, uh, I mean, they're never going to say that, but that's why Bill Guerin has made it extremely clear that they're going to get another goalie, that they are... Mm -hmm. That they're uh, they're not just going to roll with Kakinen or, or Stalock. Um, they see him a lot more than Wild fans, and there have been a lot of AHL goalies of the year that wound up doing nothing in the NHL. Um, the yeah. Dog Father, uh, Belly Rubs for Pups, is his Twitter name. Best Twitter name ever, Scott. 
Uh, he said, I've heard people say Rossi is as big as he'll ever be, but I'm wondering what Scott thinks of his ceiling of Rossi's abilities. What do you think about the max potential numbers for Rossi at the NHL level? On accounting stats, kind of production lens, I don't think he's going to be a huge goal scorer. I don't think he's going to score 30 goals a season, that kind of a thing. I think uh, that could be determined by luck and line mates over the course of his career. There are a lot of consistent sort of 20, 25 goal season or se- goal per season players who will, over the course of their season, over the course of their careers, score 31, 32, 35 goals, sort of three times in a 10 year span, that kind of a thing. I think that's where Marco will be at. He'll be a consistent contributor in terms of his ability to finish in around in the net. He has a good shot without it being the kind of sort of overwhelming shot that he can just rip past goalies from long range. He's not going to score from long range a lot, but he's going to get to the front of the net. He has all of the skill needed to finish there, both as a shooter and with his hands in tight to make quick plays and slide pucks through the five hole and that kind of a thing. And then the, his playmaking is going to be the hallmark. If, if he's going to get past being the kind of 60-point dominant two-way center and become one of the game's true stars and challenge for 70, that, that kind of a range, just below point per game, that kind of a thing, and be a, a sort of top three, top two player on a, on a Stanley Cup contending team, it's, all, it's going to come down to his ability to make plays, his ability to draw attention, his ability to keep plays alive. He's one of those kids who can just take a hit and, and keep sequences alive and hang on to the puck and pull defenders in and then make an incredible sort of seam pass through feed and that kind of a thing. So he's always going to put up the big, big assist numbers, I think, at the top of his ceiling and in his prime. I think that's going to be his bread and butter. He's going to be able to run a power play. He's going to be able to create through traffic. And you stick him with a goal-scoring winger, say uh, Kirill Kaprizov, <laughs> And he, suddenly he might be really interesting. Suddenly mm-hmm. he might be able to really sort of rack up stats. But he's not going to be, a, as I said earlier, he's not going to be a huge counting stats player. I don't think he's going to be a point-per-game player in the NHL. He's not going to be one of those people who occasionally appears in the top 10 in the league in scoring. Right. Uh, Dylan Lukes asks, uh, when do you see Adam Beckman cracking the Wilds lineup? Is he a top six or top nine guy? Good, good question. I'm interested to uh, hear what you think of that. Beckman has always been a tough evaluation for me. I was lower on him than I should have been in his draft year. He looked like kind of a third round, fourth round kind of guy for me. He was interesting. He could score goals. He could skate fine. He kind of did everything well. And a little bit like like Connor McMichael, who also had a huge season last year and established himself as a top prospect for the Washington Capitals, the, the kids who occasionally can do everything well and then also have a finishing touch, sometimes you can add an element to your skating or you can add an element to your playmaking ability and then you're more than just a good prospect. I think that's what's happened with Beckman. He is not Connor McMichael. I think Connor McMichael has now has the potential to be a true top of the lineup player. But I think Beckman's one of those kids who might be able to do a little bit of everything. The worry, even still, even after an excellent season, is that he, he also strikes me as the kind of kid whose tools may not translate. He, he's not going to be able to, to play this sort of transition track meet style. His skill isn't so dynamic that he's going to immediately jump into the NHL and be an impact guy. He's one of those kids who I suspect is going to have to sort of prove he can make plays in the AHL, start on a sort of second or third line role in the AHL, eventually work his way up to the, to the first line in the AHL, and then you go from there. And I think the worry in that kind of a trajectory for a kid with his kind of skill set is that he might become a little bit of a tweener. I wouldn't be shocked if he became a, a middle six player who could kind of do a little bit of everything for you and, and give you 15, 18 goals in a season, that kind of a thing. 
but I don't see the kind of kid whose offense is ever going to pop enough that he's just an automatic NHL player. I, I think he's always going to be kind of a depth complementary piece who has to prove that he can be an everyday NHLer. So it could be a couple of years, two, three years, he's going to have to play pro. He's going to have to carve out a niche for himself. And depending what happens with the Western Hockey League this year, his, his uh, development could be a little bit uh, delayed as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Here's another. We talk about Beckman. Let's go to Alex Hovanoff, another player that you know quite well, uh, Scott. This is from Bill. Um, you did a feature actually on Alex Hovanoff uh, last season or two seasons ago. I, I remember when he played for Moncton. Um, has there been any reports on what's going on with Alex in the KHL? He do- doesn't seem to be able to crack the lineup. It, it certainly looks like he is uh, having some issues in the KHL right now. Yeah, he is. He went over, they tried him out a couple of times in the preseason, they didn't love what he's what they saw, and ultimately he's not on their sort of everyday roster at this point, and he's kind of been up and down between the different levels in Russia, and it's been a little bit of a tougher, tougher climb for him, and that honestly kind of surprises me, because I think he's a much better player than a lot of the young kids who are playing in the KHL right now, especially with the role that COVID has played in reducing some of their lineups and requiring that they lean on some younger players and give some younger players some opportunity. So I think he's capable of playing in the KHL. The question with Havanov is that he's a, has always been that he's a little bit of a heavier kid. The talent is unquestionable. His one-timer is elite. He can score goals. He's excellent along the wall in terms of protecting the puck and making plays through traffic. And the talent is there. He's got NHL skills sort of up and down his toolbox. But the question has always been uh, for a kid who's not the, the tallest kid but, is, but carries a lot of weight – can he sort of move at an NHL pace? Can he keep up at a KHL pace, which is probably the second best professional league in the world at this point? All of those things were legitimate questions, and the early signs this year have obviously been a little bit disappointing. But I think he's got way more to offer. I still think he has an opportunity to be a player who can sort of play that complementary middle six role and then be a kind of power play specialist and potentially even play on a on a sort of top power play unit, less even less so than a sort of PP2 unit. So he, he's interesting to me. I, I really like the skill set. It may just take him some time to, to figure out the pace and the tempo. Right. Uh, I was laughing when you said that about, uh, because I remember I did a podcast with Torchetti who coached Monk and I think he used to call him cheeseburger or something because he was always, that would be like his go-to meal. Uh, so uh, hopefully he doesn't fall into the trap of Dmitry Sokolov because there's another guy that just was a great junior scorer that just cannot get yeah. his fitness um, under control and he'll, he'll never play in the NHL because of it uh, because he just he cannot seem to to get that under control and hopefully Alex learns uh, because the Wild uh, obviously uh, need centers. Uh, State of Hoppy, uh, great question from him. When it's all said and done, who will have the bigger quads, Marty St. Louis or Marco Rossi? <laughs> I mean, Marty has has reached mythical status, so it's hard to give Marco the edge. But it, it it's a worthwhile question just because Marco's lower body is 
really this the strength of his game. He, he he gets wide in his base. He's got that low center of gravity, and it just turns a small player into a bit of an ox and makes him very very mm-hmm. difficult to take the puck from. And makes also helps him take pucks back and and leverage the weight that he does has have to lean on players and and come away with steals and retrievals and that kind of a thing. So. He, he cares deeply about his fitness. Uh, I mean, we just talked about Sokolov and Havanov, and I think Havanov's got a, a better skill set than, than Sokolov did, even at the same age. So we'll see what happens with those two kids, but fitness is never, ever, ever going to be an issue for Marco Rossi, and I wouldn't be surprised with whatever fitness testing that they do in the wild. I'm not familiar with the tests that they put their players through, but I would not be surprised if he grades out at or near the top of virtually every category that values strength. Uh, yeah, and if you want to uh, see some of uh, his fitness, uh, Marco Rossi, you can follow him on Twitter at Marco Rossi two three eight three. He's got uh, some unbelievable uh, pictures on there. A couple more minutes with uh, with Scott Wheeler, the Athletic. Again, you can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott C Wheeler. Great question from Thomas Erickson. Scott, how does the twenty twenty one draft compare to the twenty twenty draft? Top heavy, uh, top end heavy or deep? Who are a couple names we should be watching? Uh, I'm sure you and Corey Promen are already looking at the twenty twenty one draft, and frankly. Uh, Wild fans might be uh, really paying attention to that draft if uh, right now their their depth chart that I just put out looks like they, uh, man, uh, they could be playing for a top draft pick next year. Yeah, it's uh, the 2021 draft is different than any of the drafts I've I've ever covered, and I've said that a couple of times in the last seven years. So you can be excused if you don't take me seriously that way, but. By different, I mean that the 2021 draft is very defense-heavy. The last two drafts, I believed were very forward-heavy. I believe that teams would reach on some of the defensemen, as I think they did with players like Philip Broberg in Edmonton a year ago, with players this week like a Braden Schneider and a Caden Gooley going as high as they did. They were very strong drafts back-to-back at forward, but outside of the Jamie Drysdales and the Bowen Byrams, and the more, even the Moritz Siders, which felt like a little bit of a reach for me at the time, they were light on numbers. And that, that's the reason there was only six defensemen taken in the top 31 this year. Next year, it would not be out of the question if six defensemen were taken in the top 10. And it's been a long time since we've seen that. 2012 was a very D-heavy draft. I believe seven of the top 10 picks were defensemen in 2012 uh, with Morgan Riley and the rest. And obviously Matt Dumba as well. But um Next year's draft is D heavy, so so if that's if that's what you need to address, if that's an organizational need heading into next year, if if you're the Ottawa Senators or the LA Kings or the Detroit Red Wings, one of those teams that's most likely to be back in the lottery conversation, I think that it's it's a, a chance for you to take some pretty unique defenders. Um, my t- my pr- sort of preliminary very early top thirty two list has already been published. I published that about three weeks ago. Um, to kind of, just kind of, to kind of tee up the draft, talk to some sources, sort of provide some quotes and some video and some early thoughts on their game. But it's subject to change. I would say on the whole that next year's draft is a pretty weak one, if I'm being honest. There isn't a clear-cut number one pick. There isn't an Alexi Lafreniere or a Jack Hughes or an Austin Matthews or a Connor McDavid. Mm-hmm. There isn't any sort of any front runner even. There could be five or six different kids who go first, second, and third overall in next year's draft. So that speaks, I think, to the quality of the top five or six kids in that draft. It is a pretty strong draft in terms of its depth. Those sort of 10 or 11 players and six or seven defensemen that I kind of hinted at are really, really good prospects. But there isn't going to be a superstar out of the draft. There isn't going to be a sort of truly transformational draft. It looks a little bit more like, say, the Nico Hiche draft did or like, say, the Aaron Ekblad draft did, where 
they're, they're going to be all good players from top to bottom, but there isn't likely going to be a, a sort of true superstar. And obviously the Nico Hishio draft has really become the Elias Pettersson draft, right. but um, it isn't going to have that kind of star power. It's just going to be a, a draft that's deep on defense. And then you've got another goalie prospect who may be just as good as Yaroslav Askarov coming in Jesper Wallstadt, who's a Swedish goalie who is already playing in the SHL and looking like one of the better goalies in the league. So um, you've got a good goalie. You've got some some really good defensemen, and it'll be a little bit lighter on forwards. It'll be fitting for the Wild to win the lottery next year with no stars. So finally they get lucky and uh, do that. What a weird draft 2012. I still remember uh, we had our we, we interviewed the top prospects on a, like a boat on like the hottest day ever in Pittsburgh. It was just brutal. I remember <laughs> talking to Radic Foxa for like 20 minutes on the top of this this boat. Um, but what a weird draft. Number one, Yakubov. Two, Ryan Murray. Three, Galchenyuk. And it goes Griffin Reinhardt, Morgan Riley, Hampus Lindholm, Matt Dumba, Derek Pouliot, Jacob Truba, Slater Cuckoo, and then number 11, Philip Forsberg. And uh, I think if you look back, I think the Wild wish they took Forsberg. Maybe. Maybe. That's arguably. At the time, they didn't need us. Didn't need him, but I think that would be a pretty good pick uh, today. Uh, a couple more questions. Uh, Scott, I appreciate your double dipping today on the podcast, and I already kept you way longer uh, than uh, than I told you would, and definitely way longer than I told producer Jeff Domet, who, uh, who's doing his like 20th podcast of the day already. Um, Shorzy asks, um, outside of Rossi, who's the next top wild prospect to make uh, make it up to the team? Well, let me ask it this way. We, we've talked about a lot of the wild prospects. What do you think of uh, both Matt Boldy and Kalen, Ad- uh, Kalen Addison? I really like Boldy. Obviously, his start to last season was was majorly disappointing. <laughs> I, I think there there's a lot that that people don't realize about what contributed to that, though. They believed when he entered that program that he was going to be a center and that Alex Newhook was going to be a winger. And what emerged quickly over the course of the first couple of months of the season was that it was clear that Matt Boldy was better at the wing and it was clear that Alex Newhook was better at center. And once they made that switch, he looked like the player who I expected he would look like. He was in my top 10 last year. I thought that he was a very good pick at 12th overall. And I think uh, over the course of the second half of the season, when him and Newhook and Hardman got going on the infamous uh, freshman line in college hockey, as they called it on every single broadcast, um, he looked like himself. He looked like this sort of strong, uh, better skater than I think people give him credit for prospect who can do a lot with the puck on his stick, can play make for those around him. And I do think he has more of a finishing touch that, than we saw in his freshman year. So I expect that once he gets back up and running, that he could be a, a point per game player in college hockey, assuming that college hockey goes off without a hitch, which is not a guarantee at this point. Um, and I think he could have a sort of very big sort of sophomore year, the kind of sophomore year that maybe people were hoping that he would have as a freshman. Um, so I, I, I'm a fan. I, I, he's, he's good. He's, he's a good player. He's not going to be a first-line player per se, but I think he has the chance to give you 50, 55 points in a season and be a, a sort of very good second-tier top of the lineup player in the NHL and, and those players have huge value look no further than the job that players like Nazem Kadri did for the Colorado Avalanche in the playoffs this year he has that kind of a ceiling I think so he's a good player and, and sir, forgive me for saying this but who was your second question uh, there? Kalen Addison the uh the top prospect oh, K- that the Wild got uh from the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Zucker yeah K- Kalen's fabulous uh I did a story on him a couple of years ago for obviously for the Pittsburgh side of of our network at the time um when I was in Plymouth for for the World Junior sort of evaluation camp uh miss those days uh, <laughs> but he he's great he's 
he's he's unique. He's a unicorn of sorts. He's one of those kids who can just do things offensively across the offensive zone blue line that very few can do. His ability to walk the line and move laterally through his footwork is exceptional. I wouldn't say he's the best north-south skater, but east to west, he can do a lot. He opens up seams for himself. He opens up lanes for his line mates to, get, to sort of slide into space. He can score goals from the point from long range. Offensively, it's all there. The question has always been defensively, and despite being a little bit of a smaller player, one of the things they've tried to get him to do in the WHL has been to improve his defensive game. When I speak to his coaches in Lethbridge, they often talk about how he's 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 one of those players who kind of tries to play bigger than he is. He's not shy of being physical. He leads with his body into physical engagements. And they've actually asked him to do the opposite. They've asked him to use his stick more, to play positionally a little bit more soundly. Um, so I think that that's an interesting characteristic because I think people expect him to be kind of a soft, weak, um, loose in board battles kind of a player. And, and that's not what he is at all. He could actually stand to, to be a little bit of a different kind of a player, I think. So he's going to be good, I think. Uh, he's he's going, always going to be a little bit of a utility guy. I think you'll have to play him with a defender who can complement him and who can kind of sit back. But there is still room for utility guys in, in, in the NHL these days. Obviously, John Carlson is the king utility player and has become one of the best defensemen in the league by being an offense first guy. But you go up and down the list, Kevin Shattenkirk, Keith Yandel, there have been players in recent years who've carved out a, an excellent NHL career for themselves without ever being great defensive players or without ever being the strongest players along the wall and that kind of a thing. So um, I, I think that's the range he fits into. I think he'll be an NHLer. I think he'll run a power play unit. I think he'll contribute offensively and do a lot of things that pull fans out of the seat, out of their seats, especially for a defenseman. That's normally the forward's job. And I think he, he has some of the tools needed to be a, a defender in his own zone who can kind of get by and maybe play a regular shift. Right, which is why uh, Matt Dumba is suddenly so expendable here in Minnesota uh, with due time. Uh, last question from me, Scott. Um, I haven't asked you about Marat Kuznetsov. I know I'm absolutely butchering that name, but the Wilds' first second-round pick uh, Wednesday. Maybe you could, one, give me the pronunciation of the name, but do you know a lot about this center? Yeah, it's Kuznadinov, and he's he's one of those kids who coaches fall in love with because he does everything. He is one of the best defensive players, one of the more responsible above puck players whenever he's on the ice. He doesn't cheat for anything. He works hard. His feet are always moving. He's always chasing. He's always tracking the play. He's always fighting for loose pucks. And despite the fact that he's not the biggest kid, he is strong on his feet and he can come away from those battles. And then the skill is almost secondary. He's one of those, think about a Zach Hyman type. Think about all of those players in the NHL who are maybe the third best player on a top line, but are still top line players. I think that's what Murat has the potential to do. I'm not sure he's going to stick at center if he's ever going to do that because he doesn't have the talent to be a driver offensively and to, to potentially even be a top six center, I don't think, in terms of his raw skill set. Um, but he can handle the puck. He can make plays. He can shoot the puck. He can get to the net and score. He's just one of those players, though, who I suspect is going to support everyone else who's around him, make everyone else who's around him better, and be the kind of player who can play in the middle six of your lineup and play with any type of line mate. He can, if he's playing on the third line, he might be able to be the driver. If he's playing on the second line, he can be the third best player on that line and kind of just help everyone out and make simple, smart, 
sort of efficient plays offensively. So he's just one of those kids who I think is, is eventually going to figure it out and find his way to the NHL. Coaches are always going to feel like they can trust him. And that's half the battle with a lot of these kids is showing A, that you've got the skill and then B, can you earn the trust of an NHL coach in terms of doing all of the other things that are required of players young and old. And he's one of those players who's going to be able to do that. And I think the skill set is enough to get him there. Okay, last question. I lied. Uh, since you just talked about Amarat, let me ask you about Damon Hunt and, uh, and, and Pavel Novak. Yeah, I was really high on a lot of their picks. I'm less high on Damon Hunt. He obviously went through a ton last year battling a skate cut that that derailed 30-plus games of his season. He was a top prospect coming into the year. He's a big sort of Hockey Canada darling. They love him with Hockey Canada. He's always played a prominent role there. So he he there was a name value entering the year with Hunt that I think had a lot of people excited. And there is some some redeeming qualities to his game. He's not shy with or without the puck. Uh, he's engaged when he's out there. All of those things are fine. My worry with Hunt was that when I saw him play last season, and maybe this can be chalked up to the to the injury and there's brighter hockey or, uh, sort of around the corner, but when I saw him play last season, I was never particularly impressed. And some of that with some of these kids is that I, I don't have the chance to watch all of their games. And mm-hmm. there's a risk with some kids in every draft class that if I watch them three or four times over the course of the season that I've only seen them play poorly. And so mm-hmm. maybe that's a part of it with Hunt, especially considering he didn't just he just frankly didn't get to play as much as a lot of the other kids. But I just didn't see when I watched him play sort of top four upside that some some other people see in him. There are there are believers both publicly and privately who think he can be a second parent guy if all goes well for him and if he gets his health back under control and all of that. So um, I don't know. I, I didn't love the hunt pick. There were some really good players still available. Um, Novak's interesting. Novak is a kid who quite frankly, isn't a very good skater. That's that's the knock. That's the thing that's holding him back. But with the puck, he is honestly one of the harder shooters in the draft. He can overpower goalies. He can beat goalies cleanly. And he can handle the puck well enough that even without being a sort of flashy skater, he can play past that first layer or, or sort of execute on a quick cut to open up a chance for his shot. And suddenly he becomes a really interesting player. I think it's going to take him getting faster if he's ever going to get there because the rest of his talent outside of his shot isn't so high end that he's just going to be able to easily navigate without sort of better skating. So you just have to hope with a kid like Pavel that, that they work on his skating, that he gets faster, and then that they can find a role for him where he can use his shot and sort of play to the top of his ability. It's it's funny you brought up uh... – you know, the, not not getting a lot of viewings. I went to one junior hockey league game in the Western Hockey League in like 2003 and four to see the Calgary Hitmen. And uh, I went with actually Chuck Fletcher and Brent Flair when, when they were with Florida and I was covering Florida. But uh, I wanted to watch Andrew Ladd play and it might have been the worst game I've ever seen. He's <laughs> so bad. And obviously he uh, forged a pretty good NHL career. So um, you can see why uh, Scott Wheeler is one of our MVPs at The Athletic. Um, and again, if you love this podcast, he's also on the full 60 this week's uh, bonus episode. Uh, Craig Custance, not only did he do an episode with Brian Burke, which will be extremely entertaining, I can guarantee that just came out. 
Uh, but uh, Scott Wheeler and Corey Promen in a bonus episode of the Full 60 uh, that break down the entire draft. Highly recommend that. Again, you could follow Scott on Twitter at Scott C. Wheeler. You can read all his stories. Just go into our search. Look for his uh, December uh, 5th, 2018 story when he billeted with uh, Marco Rossi. Look for his Ryan O'Rourke feature that's right on the Athletic slash Wild page right now. Uh, that was out yesterday. Uh, he wrote about Alex Hovenoff last year as well. Scott, you're an absolute gem. I, I really, really appreciate it respect your work no problem and and keep up the work too you you own the minnesota wild beat so love reading your stuff thanks so much scott and again check out our comment section for each episode on the athletic app and read and subscribe straight from the source on apple if you aren't a subscriber to the athletic now is the time subscribe now and save go to the athletic.com straight from the source and you can receive an all-access subscription for just a buck a month uh, that's uh, let's see. I'm going to go to Starbucks later. That's I'm going to spend about three and a half times that for my Americano. Thanks, everybody. Bye.